encourage you this evening to turn to the Gospel of Luke and the seventh chapter once again, Luke chapter 7. Memories of saints is a precious thing. The memory of the just is blessed and it is good to remember those who have fought a good fight and finished the course and kept the faith. I'll never forget the first time I wept at the passing of someone. It wasn't a member of my family. There was only one individual that was very near to our family, very close. Well, there wasn't a relative, but a very, very close and dear a friend of the family who passed away when I was about 11. And I remember not really being able to process all of it uh, as a fairly young boy. And my mom kept me, kept, didn't want me to go to the hospital to, to see her, and she wanted me to remember her as I remembered her as this joyful person and one who brought a lot of sunshine into people's lives, and she didn't want me to see her looking very differently as she was dying with cancer. But shortly after I was saved, there was a lady that was in the church. She had had a a rough life, a sinful life for a long, long time, and was converted much later in life. This lady used to come in. I worked in a supermarket at the time of my conversion. And so I was working there. I was converted, started attending church, and she would come into the supermarket. She'd always stop and talk, always encourage me, especially as she saw me get involved with the open air and the outreach. And she always had a word of encouragement. She was, she was an encourager. And not long after, she passed away. And I remember standing my work and for the first time shedding a tear over the, the finality of death. That's it. In one sense, in this side of eternity, when you're gone, you're gone. And yet amidst that sorrow, there was a wonderful hope. An awareness that For her, it was absent from the body, present with the Lord. And then the comfort of the gospel. So we sorrow not as those that have no hope. And we will see one another again. So always treasure the memory of those that you have known, who have been faithful in their service to Christ. It is precious indeed. And they stand as part of the cloud of witnesses, calling you to stay the course. If you could hear their voices, now to you, press on, press on. Don't cave, don't give up, keep pressing on. So may the memories, even in your mind, of those you love, may you hear them calling you to press on. Look, chapter 7, as I say, is, is where we are tonight, and we're going to pick up where we left off last time, which is verse 18. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. So we've had the healing of the centurion's servant. We've had the raising of the widow's son. We come then to verse 18. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. And the disciples of John showed him all of all these things. And John calling unto him, two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus, answering, said unto them, Go your way, and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, 
the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. We'll end the reading there at verse 23. Let's still our hearts before God and pray for his help in the consideration of his word. Lord, we do thank Thee for the memory of those whom Thou hast called to Thyself in time and then promoted them to glory. We ask that Thou wilt help us to treasure their memory and make it a sanctifying influence in our lives. Let us never live on in anger at Thy providence in taking those that belong to Thee but let it be a stimulating factor in our walk with Christ that we must continue to press on should we desire to see them again. For he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt also make our own lives to be a stimulating influence in others. And whether we die in youth, or in old age, may it please thee to bless the memory of our own lives to those that remain. Grant tonight, as we consider thy word, that it also will help us, that it will provoke us, that it will encourage us, and that it will bring life and light to us. Magnify Christ, exalt him, and give help in the preaching and listening that the Savior may be honored. We pray in his name. Amen. Perhaps no two things get talked about more in the church than great crimes and great conversions. The first, of course, is the unfortunate product of our fallen nature to talk and revel in, God forbid, the falling of others, the great crimes of others. But the second is is a delightful result of the Lord's miraculous grace, great conversions. What the Lord does in the lives of men and women and young people, it brings joy to our hearts to see it. We love it. And so when we read in verse 17, which was the last verse we read last Lord's Day, this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. This rumor of him, this rumor of what Christ had done, an awareness of a boy being raised from the dead, a young man being raised from the dead. We're not sure of his exact age, but he was a youth of some description. And this spreads. Spreads. People are talking about it. You can understand why. They're talking about someone raised from the dead. Israel has not seen this in centuries. So of course they're talking about it. But it's a good thing to talk about. And we need more of this. We need more evidence of the Lord's miraculous working that gets us talking about what the Lord is doing. And every time I listen to forefathers talk about days when they would attend the house of God with the expectation not will someone be saved, but how many? <laughs> I, I, I find it hard to put myself there. I, I haven't seen those days. And yet those just a generation, generation and a half or whatever, older than I, are, are talk about them, remember them, can account them, and I think, Lord, will, will you bypass this generation? Will we ever see it? I want us to see it. I hope it's for the right reasons. But even in the day of small things, even when there aren't many, we should still delight and rejoice in the news of one rising from the dead. We should get to know one another's testimonies. I've discussed that briefly recently. Getting to know how the Lord dealt with each of us. How we came to knowledge of 
Christ, how were you raised from the dead? How were you raised from the dead? It's a good question, isn't it? How were you raised from the dead? And to have those discussions, to, to find out, to learn. It's one of the best things when people come you know, applying for membership and we have them before us and before the session, one of the blessings is, well, how did the Lord save you? Maybe next time I'll be asking, well, how were you raised from the dead? <laughs> These are good things to know. You may ask, well, what's, what's the big deal? Why do we need to know this? Well, it's a help. It is a help. There aren't many things to help us in this world that has its bent towards sin and corruption and the curse. But what an encouragement it is to see that which prevails against the curse, that which is evidence of the Lord's mighty working, when we see His hand in the saving of precious souls. This is a help. We need encouragement, and that will be evident tonight. For as events unfold in the passage that we are in presently, in the time of our Lord's ministry, we're brought to consider John the Baptist, and we'll be seeing more of him in the next week or two as well, because we didn't read it, but the following verses go on to discuss more about John the Baptist, and we have much to learn concerning him. Of course, this is not the first time that Luke has brought him to the fore, and although it's been a long time for us in our uh, traversing through the Gospel of Luke, if you have a good enough memory or you're familiar with the Gospel of Luke, you will know that Luke has given us extensive details in terms of laying a background and foundation of this man, John the Baptist. He gave us details concerning his birth, about his parents and how that all came to be, and what was said about him, what was prophesied concerning him. And then we saw a little bit of his ministry as well leading up to the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we were told as well of his imprisonment. In fact, we'll, we'll just read a few verses just to refresh your memory somewhat. Look chapter 3. Look chapter 3. John is engaging in ministry. Luke gives us some insight into how that ministry unfolded. And we'll just start at verse 15 not read all of it, but verse 15. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, you see the impact this man is having, is this the Messiah? Is this the one that should come? John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. So this is where it is left off somewhat. It uh, is not, of course, he's kind of giving a detail where it led, his ministry led up to. But this is where it ended up. After the Lord baptized, and there's a period of time when they're both ministering, then eventually John ends up in prison. And look, gives us that detail. He's in prison. So when we come and his, his name is, is brought to, our fore, to the fore again in Luke 7, we're meant to remember, well, well, John is asking this from the condition of being in prison. And he's there, waiting, thinking, considering, and hearing what is going on concerning the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'd imagine all these miracles as they're being performed by the Savior. John is, is hearing about them. And we, and we certainly know that, at the very least, this particular miracle comes to him in a very specific way. Verse 18, the disciples of John showed him of all these things. So, that in the immediate context, what is going on in the ministry of Christ gets carried to John the Baptist. And you would imagine, you would imagine that with all the miracles being performed, John the Baptist would be the last person to ask the question that is put to the Lord Jesus in verse 19. Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And here's the thing. 
It's not just unbelievers and young Christians that have questions. It is not uncommon for mature Christians to have questions also. Questions about what is going on. Questions that are in some way stimulated by pain, suffering, chastening, and other aspects of the province of God in their lives. And I want us to think about this passage with that overarching title, that theme, Mature Believers Have Questions Too. Mature Believers Have Questions Too. So let's dig a bit more deeply into this and consider first the reason for the question, the reason for the question. Let's read verse 18 and 19 again. The disciples of John showed him of all these things, and John calling unto him two of his disciples sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Two things I want us to see here. First the question, and then the problem. The question. The question arises from the context, as we've said, of John being in prison, being essentially in a dungeon below Herod's grand palace. He had the opportunity to minister not just to all the common people who came to hear him and were baptized of him, but he had the opportunity to stand before Herod, or at least in some way, address the sins of Herod as well. We've read that. John was fearless. He was utterly fearless. He declared the Word of God without regard for the feelings of men, not because he was unkind, but because the truth matters. And when truth is at stake, it doesn't really matter so much how people feel about it. You must get the truth across. And though when you read his preaching, it comes across somewhat brash, yet it was stemming from a heart that was filled with compassion and love and was longing for a nation, the entire nation, to turn back to God. Tens of thousands followed John. Thousands were influenced by his ministry. And there's this, as we read, this musing about, is this Christ? And John was willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. A very important aspect of Christian living, being willing to suffer. How dangerous it is to desire a form of Christianity that always will cater to your needs, that will whisk you into heaven in a comfortable fashion. The Lord Jesus warns about that in the parable of the sower. Such people will not last. And when the persecution comes, when the heat comes down, they will wilt and they will be found no more among the people of God. So John is biding his time, waiting in prison, hearing all the news of the miracles, and it appears that some who were following the Lord Jesus and observing what he was doing still had a very keen allegiance to John because they felt it necessary to report to John what was going on, to stay in connection with John. And so John was able to call on them and say, look, could you go to him and ask this question? And that question then comes, art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And when you read the words, he that should come, there's sometimes there's a curse of knowledge. You read that, you immediately understand. Many of you understand what that means. But just step back, and perhaps there are some here tonight who have no idea what that means, or you're grasping it with a sense of context. But he that should come was a clear indication of the expectation of the Jews. Someone's coming. The one promised of God is coming. He that should come. Without title, without expression of what he should do necessarily, just the awareness that he is coming. This language is an indication of the promised Messiah. Even in what we read in Luke 3.16, John said there, One mightier than I cometh. You know, all this is pulling in terminology that is drawing from the Old Testament Scriptures. We read in Psalm 118, verse 26, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. He's coming. He is coming. 
This was language that was familiar to the Jews, familiar to many of you tonight as well. Messiah is the coming one, the one we're expecting to arrive. So the question then essentially is around that, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we've been expecting all these centuries? (laughs) So that's the question. We come then to the problem. (laughs) There's a problem here. Turn for a moment to John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. I think I turned your attention to this back in Luke chapter 3 when we were considering John. But let's look at it again. John chapter 1. And we'll read from the well-known language of verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now note this, And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel, therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. John had had an unmistakable confirmation in terms of determining who the Messiah is. This will be the indication. God had given him revelation and understanding because as the forerunner, the most important part of his job is how will I be able to identify him? And God condescends. He said, this is what? This is what, how you will know. This is what you will see. So he acknowledges, I knew him not. I didn't know, but then I understood that when I see this, it will be him. And he sees it. He sees it at the baptism. And he's able to declare definitively, This is the Son of God. So why on earth do we have this question? In Luke chapter 7, Art thou he that should come? Or look we for another? (laughs) Was it simply an unprovoked period of doubt? Just a fainting fit? Certainly he would not be alone in that. There are many. You read through the scriptures, the prevalence of unbelief in men like Abraham and Moses and Gideon. and The list goes on. There's many of them. The apostles even particularly as well were always being reprimanded or reproved for their unbelief. So we know that genuine believers can have periods of doubt. It's common, in fact. And we know it in our own hearts, don't we? That's why we have, we have no problem understanding when the man who had the boy who was possessed with the devil in Mark 9 and the Lord comes on the scene and, and he says, remember what he says? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Now, if, you're, if you didn't understand faith or you didn't truly understand what it is to be a believer, you might look at that and say, well, it's either one or the other. <laughs> You either believe or you don't. What's this language that you're using? But Christians understand it. Christians understand, I believe. But there's this unbelief at times that is there as well. A measure of doubt or the challenge of the heart to truly grasp what the Lord is going to do or able to do. When you read the commentators, there are quite a number. John Gill, J.C. Ryle, even Spurgeon touches on it in some way, at least he raises it as a possibility, who believe that the question isn't really for 
John's benefit is for his disciples. And he is telling the disciples, go and ask the question. And the sense is, they're struggling. They're wondering, is this the one that should come? Are you right on this, John? And John says, look, go and ask him. And see for yourself. The problem I have with that is the response of the Lord in verse 22. If the focus of the benefit is upon the disciples, it doesn't really seem to make much sense when verse 22, Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard. Go and tell John. That clearly seems to indicate that John is the one who's asking this question. So again, you come back to the problem. Why? Well, he so evidently, so clearly saw evidence that this is the Son of God. And then he began to move disciples of his own from himself to Jesus and is declaring, he must increase, I must decrease. Don't be surprised or upset as the crowd following me begins to diminish and the crowd following him begins to increase. It's not about me. I'm not even worthy to tie a shoe. It's all about him. Get your eyes on him. Behold the Lamb of God. So someone preaching with such confidence and thinking such way and pointing others to consider the same, there's a problem here. How did he get to a point where he asks the question, Art thou he that should come or look we for another? Is it a result of the suffering? Is it the result of being this, in this dark dungeon? No doubts. Even as a man who lived an ascetic life, feeding himself on locusts and wild honey, wasn't exactly like he had a luxurious life for himself. But being in prison brought its own burden. John was, a, was kind of a maverick spirit, a man who stood in his own, a prophet who didn't care about what anyone thought. Now he's bound and prevented from engaging in his ministry and, and perhaps just sitting there in the dungeon day after day got old very quickly. And that can happen. That can happen. The strongest of believers can be put in such a providential position where they begin to struggle and where they find themselves, while it may not be literally a dungeon, as John found himself in, it feels like one. Maybe you've been there. You can't see any light in the day. Yes, the Lord's people get, can find themselves in dark places too. And again, I'm not going to take time to go into the Scriptures and look at Job, look at Elijah. Others who find themselves in very dark places. They weren't, as I say, in a literal dungeon, but it felt like one. There was no light where they were. Of course, when you are in such a place, it's helpful to have friends. And John had friends. John had disciples who were still loyal to him. People who were willing to go on this journey, take the effort of traveling the miles, going back and forward with the information it's good to have people stand with us. But with all that said, I don't think it was any of this in John's case. I believe John's question arises from the experience of unmet expectations. You remember John's message about Christ as he was preaching and preparing people for his coming? We read it in Luke 3, verse 17. Speaking of Christ, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. John is preaching of Messiah's judgment, 
the judgment that Messiah will certainly bring. That is prophesied throughout Scripture. And he is declaring this. And like many, John therefore had certain expectations in relation to Messiah's arrival. He expected him to do certain things. He will thoroughly purge his floor. He gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. He expected an earthly kingdom, much like the apostles, to be established with judgment upon the ungodly. And he may have anticipated this to come very quickly, and ultimately it would, it would lead to his own release. So as he sits day after day, and I, I can't be absolutely certain about this, you, you know that, but I'm trying to help you understand some of the things that we, we can pull Scripture together and, and see what was in his thinking, what was in his mind, what was a common understanding about the Messiah, that even John, in his reading of Scripture and, and processing the Word of God, had a focus upon the judgment, the finality of what Messiah will bring to the world, and was expecting that, therefore, to come. And it's of particular relevance to him as he finds himself in, in the dungeon and, and hearing the parties and the celebration and all the, the flamboyant living of Herod and all the others above him. As far as we know from the historians, that's the way that setup would have been for him, looking at the, those historians, Josephus, discussing the building where Herod would have been and how that dungeon would have been situated below the palace and so on. So he would have been hearing this and seeing all of this. As I was thinking of that, I thought, you know, this isn't uncommon. We, we have this, perhaps something of this feeling that we find in, in Psalm 73, perhaps entering into the heart of, 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 of John. Go to Psalm 73, and, and I'm reading this because this can quickly enter into the minds and hearts of the Lord's people as well. You look at all the powerful and mighty people of the day in which we live, and you will feel perhaps like the psalmist at times. Psalm 73. We'll read a few verses here, the opening five verses. Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. This is his faith. It's being shaken. My steps had well nigh slipped. Why? For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Go down to verse 10. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain. And washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. And he goes on then to express what he began to see, what was truly the end of those that appear to prosper. So, so John's there, and he has been bold as a lion. And he has preached the word before Herod fearlessly. And he has called him. <laughs> You think, I'm direct. Standing before him and saying, you're an adulterer. And calling him out for all of his sins. And warning him, not just merely to, to point out the sins, but, but going after the soul of this man, this, this man of power and influence. He's going after his soul. Herod, you need to give up your sin. You need to turn to the Messiah. Passionately pre preach to him with a heart for his soul. But now he sits there in the dungeon, rotting away. And his expectation of Messiah coming and, and sweeping through with fiery judgment isn't coming to pass. And every day he sees the wicked prosper.
Therefore I say to you, you can see how doubt can be created by such circumstances. Not through a want of faith so much as through misplaced faith. He thought it would be like this. And when it wasn't like this, he struggled. And that is so common. It happens all the time. It happens generally among the Lord's people. Even the best taught. And this is why we emphasize the sovereignty of God. We deal with the sorrows and the struggles of the Christian life. We're not here to tell you that the Lord has called you to be wealthy and healthy and prosper in everything that you do. Absolutely, without fail, just make sure you believe and have enough faith. We know not what is on the morrow. We have no idea how our life will unfold, how God will guide, how His providence will lead, or where we will find ourselves at any given moment. And if we don't understand what Job so powerfully understood, though he slay me, Yet will I trust him. There's always danger. You remember Harold Camping? <laughs> I'm sure there were many sincere people. And he's telling them, the rapture's coming. This is the date. This is when it's going to occur. And they're all preparing for it and selling things and buying other things and transforming their life. And they were acting in a measure of faith, but it was misplaced faith. There was no truth to the foundation that was, they were being told to stand upon. Harold says it will happen here at this time, and the day comes and it goes again. And these people are left to be the mockery of the world. Hope is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. When it is established upon truth, when your hope is rooted into the Word of God firmly and surely, but one must be aware that their hopes are established on the truth and that the timing of their expectations is reasonable. So John's expectation was that Christ will come and pour out His judgment and deliver Israel. And that will all happen. There will be an execution of judgment. Christ has been set to be the judge of the earth by the Father. But his timing was wrong. And so his faith was misplaced in terms of the timing of the events. Expectation creates a vacuum that left unfilled will inevitably be filled by doubt. So be careful with your expectations. And in part, this is perhaps why it was the centurion that had great faith. Because he wasn't a Jew. He didn't have all these expectations. Well, he has to do this and that and the other. And he, he wasn't filled with all of that. In, in one sense, his ignorance removed what was an obstacle to many of the Jews as they fed upon one another with an expectation of what should happen when Messiah immediately arrives. And the centurion perhaps was without all of that knowledge. And he, he laid hold, and so his faith expanded and laid hold upon it. And so great was his faith. But for many of the Jews, there were all these expectations that were creating stumbling blocks. John had expectations that were not being met. I suggest that is the reason for the question, Art thou he that should come? Things aren't matching up. I was telling everyone, you're going to come and, and purge everything. Why is it not happening? It was like Elijah. <laughs> it's like unto Elijah, but just like Elijah, he had his doubts. 
In fact, he was just like his father, wasn't he? Zachariah, he had his doubts too. Yes, even, even John had his doubts. Secondly, the answer to the question. The answer to the question. We've seen the reason for the question. Let's consider the answer to the question. Verse 20. When the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues, and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way, and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. Now consider this first part of his response. Christ's response is one of word and deed. He acts and then he speaks. His deeds are given to us there in verse 21, what he went about doing in that same hour, that is in that, in that time frame, around the time that they were there. A synopsis of his ministry for that period, for that day perhaps. It's amazing just to think of it, just, just, just what he was doing. It's amazing that people saw this. And many of them didn't believe. He cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind he gave sight. This actually happened. People who were incurable. At death's door. Blind. For years, no amount of the efforts of the physicians could change anything. And the Lord goes about in a, in a very short space of time and heals them all. Those are his deeds. But his words are perhaps even more instructive. In verse 22, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. His words in this text are drawing from a number of passages, particularly in Isaiah. The two primary passages, the most prominent ones, are found first in Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. I'll read it to you. This is speaking again of Messiah, looking to him. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. As well as Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. So, there are other verses that may correlate with what the themes that the Lord deals with here, but those are the heart of them. And the Lord is saying this. He's saying this to these men to take it to John, knowing that John, as the forerunner of Messiah, is well acquainted with every messianic text. John knows these texts. Now he's human. <laughs> and in his ministry, he had a propensity to lean upon particular, te particular texts that he, he wanted to see fulfilled so desperately. It was true, it was right what he was declaring will be brought to pass by the Messiah. But now the Lord sends back this message, which is an interweaving of messianic texts that John was very familiar with. And he is calling John to revive his memory, to see this aspect of the Messiah. His answer, essentially, is both empirical and biblical. He gave empirical evidence. What you've seen and heard, that's empirical. But it's also biblical. It's not just some unique thing. This is founded on Scripture. What you've seen and heard is what Scripture says you should see and hear here when Messiah comes. So that's what transpires. And again, if I may make another suggestion to you. In this answer, the Lord Jesus is communicating to John... This must take place before the other. John, you're looking for judgment. Judgment will come. But mercy precedes judgment. 
It is so even today. Is it not true? I may stand here on given occasions, as I have in the past, and no doubt will in the future, and at times declare to you specifically what Scripture teaches concerning the day of judgment, the details of what will happen to those that die without Christ. And I'll seek to display to you the horrors of that day, the judgment of Christ upon the unbelieving the undiluted wrath of God upon those who refuse to bow the knee to Christ. But I also communicate to you that this is a day of grace. This is a day of salvation. Almighty God sees fit still to send the rain upon the just and upon the unjust. As we've seen from Luke chapter 6, this is evidence, a manifestation of His mercy. And He is showing mercy. And the Son has come first in the fulfilling of all the Messianic texts. It is to fulfill all the merciful ones first. It's to show mercy to these who are in great need of mercy. Mercy comes before judgment. If you're not saved here tonight, let let me warn you of the danger of living in a day of mercy and imagining that it will go on indefinitely. that the suspension of the wrath of God means there is no wrath of God. It's not true. Every morning you wake up, you take for granted everything. The ability to get out of your bed, go through all the Aspects of getting ready, going to your school, going to work, visiting friends, playing games, engaging in your hobbies, being out in the garden, mowing the lawn, pulling the weeds, making dinner, going on vacation, seeing family, having parties, celebrations, other events, Thanksgiving, Christmas. And day by day passes, week after week, month after month, year after year. There's no sign of judgment. And you think it's not coming. Thirdly. The encouragement to the questioner. The encouragement to the questioner. Verse 23 of Luke chapter 7. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. The Lord turns his attention to Isaiah again. Turn to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. Let's read from verse 13. Isaiah 8, verse 13. Hear this exhortation. Sanctify or set apart the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he shall be for a sanctuary. But for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, for a gin or a snare, a type of a snare, and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them 
shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. You see the language there referring to stumbling and rock of offense. That's what Christ's alluding to. He is assured that John will understand what he is saying. He's bringing his mind back to these texts in the prophecy of Isaiah. And he therefore is giving to him an exhortation, a warning, but in another sense an encouragement. Blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. He will not stumble at me. He will not fall at me. What a warning. Even to take the, the text, sanctify the Lord of hosts himself. We preached this not that long ago. Setting apart the Lord, letting him be your fear, him be your dread. You can rest in the Lord. Fear God, you don't have to fear anything else. Would that young people understood this. We all understand youth, and it's not exclusive to youth. In fact, we were talking about this yesterday morning at the prayer meeting and discussing something of you know, the, the, the fear of man, aspects of the fear of man. But it certainly is present among youth. Everyone wants to be liked, and especially when you're young. And you get a little more thick skin as you get older, and you realize, you know, it doesn't really matter so much. It still matters in certain contexts, and it can still be a snare to you. But the only way to live free You want to be free? The only way to be truly free is to sanctify the Lord Himself and let Him be your fear and let Him be your dread. You fear God, you fear no one else. If you rightly fear Him. You fear God, it doesn't matter what people think or say or threaten. It does not matter. (laughs) The freedom of a conscience void of offense before God and man The freedom of knowing that you live predominantly with an eye toward Him. And this is where the Lord brings us in a sanctifying work by the Spirit. Young person, this is what the Lord wills for you. is to win you away from all that sense of desiring to please people who don't matter. And perhaps in two, three, four years of your life, they won't even be in your life. They won't be relevant to you. But at this present time, they seem so important and you give up so much to please them. And for what? It's vain. It's empty. It's pointless. If they're such friends that they cannot appreciate the stand that you take and your love for Christ, they are not friends. They're not people worth spending time with. They're trying to get between you and Christ. They're trying to remove you from the Lord. They're trying to break and sever your love for the Savior. And they're doing the devil's work. And you need to fear God. You can't have a sense of being willing to offend God that you might please men. If you do that and you're willing to do that, you're not converted Are you given strong evidence that you have never known the regenerating work of the Spirit? And the Lord, in his encouragement to John, John, remember Isaiah 8. Don't fall into what the prophecy says, when many among them shall stumble and fall, and be broken and snared and be taken. Don't do it, John. Don't do it. Keep pressing on. Keep pressing on. That's what we're saying. But the memory of those who've been faithful, those that we love, those who have gone on into the presence of Christ and are in glory. They are beckoning us to persevere, to continue on. They are calling you not to be offended in Christ. But to love Him. Serve Him. So if we take a moment just to look at the Lord's answer and all that is being said here. The realization is this. Our Lord does not satisfy everything about John's question. I'm not going to hide that. He does not satisfy everything about John's question. The inevitable response to what Jesus said would be, okay, but when is the judgment coming? You're saying, okay, now is a time of, of giving sight to the blind and so on and so forth. 
But, but when's the judgment coming? And will I ever get out of this prison? And the Lord doesn't answer that. He doesn't. And yet John continues, perseveres, and faces a martyr's death to the glory of God. And the question I had then was, since John had such a question, art thou he that should come? And the Lord gave the response that he gave and enabled John to stay the course and be beheaded. What were the essential elements that enabled him to do that? Three things. One, the Lord gave evidence of who he is. He gave evidence of who he is. He performed miracles that solidified in the minds of those that were sent by John to come back and report what he is doing is what Messiah should do. This is who he is. He also gave evidence of what he was here to do. Not only who he is, but what he is doing. By doing these things, by, by delivering these people and giving sight to the blind and raising the dead and all that, it wasn't just proving that he is Messiah, but in such a way he is showing it to be, well, this is what the Scripture says Messiah is meant to do. So it's not just the, it's not just the power with which he does these things. Only one who is God can do these things. That's who he is. But also scripture says what he shall do and he is fulfilling those as well. So who he is, what he is here to do, the third one then, is an exhortation to trust him. That's it. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm here to do. Trust me. And that was enough. That was enough. John didn't need all the details. I know who you are. I know what you're doing. You're saving. You're delivering all these miracles. They're signifying what you're here to do spiritually. You're giving sight to blind people. You're raising dead people. You're causing those who are unclean to be cleansed. This is the work of the Messiah. He's come to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies. He's come to fulfill all the sacrifices that pointed us to this great deliverance. He's doing all of that. So I know who he is. And I know what he's doing. Now I just trust him. Was that not how the Lord essentially dealt with Thomas in all of his doubt? After the death, the resurrection of Christ, Thomas is not there. And then the following week, Thomas turns up, and you know his question, I won't believe, I will not believe until I thrust my hand into the wounds. And so there he is, present the second Lord's day, and he sees the Lord, and the Lord calls him, behold my wounds. Now, now Thomas already knows who he is. His problem is he thinks he's dead. So he knows who he is, and there he's standing, and he's not dead. <laughs> So he knows who he is, and Christ is pointing to his wounds, reminding him of what he has done. And by doing that, implicitly calling him, Thomas, trust me. Or, to use the language of the passage, believe me. Is that what he, not what he says? John 20, 29, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. And then he says, blessed are they that have not seen and yet believed. And when you read that, the Lord Jesus is looking at you. <laughs> blessed, blessed are you who believe and you haven't seen Or to take the text. Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. That is the one who believes and isn't offended. Will not stumble. Will not fall away. Will continue to believe. No matter what happens. 
All we need to know to prevent us from tripping over the inevitable difficulties of life that strain our faith and are appointed by God to stretch us at times giving us a feeling that we can take no more. We just need to know three things. I know who he is and I know what he has done for me. And he calls me Don't be offended. Trust me. Blessed are such. Blessed are such. Who bask not in all the information of what God is doing. Because you don't know. (laughs) But bask in the knowledge that he knows what he is doing. And he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. Oh, that we would have the certain day of Job. As I mentioned in prayer, some of you are entering college or the workplace for the first time. Very, very soon. And I will warn you now, most of the people that you meet, they will have no problem, really, with your faith. Except when you say, Jesus is the only way. If you speak in such a fashion that excludes Islam, excludes Judaism, excludes the atheist who thinks he's good, and excludes the Buddhist, and excludes the Hindu, and excludes everyone else. They will despise you. The question is, will you stumble? There was no other way for John. He had to keep trusting. He couldn't magic a new life for himself. He was there in prison for the cause of Christ and Jesus saying, look, (laughs) I'm fulfilling scripture. Don't stumble now, John. Don't stumble now. I say to you, I say to you all, in this pluralistic society, do not stumble. Because if Jesus is not the only way, if that's not your understanding, Christ is the only way. Your Jesus is another Jesus. And you've long removed yourself from the faith. May the Lord help us and preserve our faith in these days. Let's bow together in prayer. Let me speak to the more mature saints here tonight. You're not alone in the questions you have about the providence of God. The why questions. Why has it not turned out the way I hoped? Why is God not answering my prayers? Why has God allowed this to happen? Get to the foundation and stay there. I know who Jesus is. I know what he has done for me. And I'm going to trust him no matter what. And that's sufficient 
to bring you with the blessing of God. Blessed is he. Even though they have not seen, believes. Blessed is he that is not offended in me. Lord, we pray that thou wilt give grace to those tonight who may at times struggle for various reasons that are completely understandable. And our puny, finite minds simply can't begin to comprehend the reasons why. So, Lord, we pray, increase our faith. Graciously deliver us from a faith that is dependent upon understanding. Help us simply to know what we need to know and not be so obsessed about the details that it pleases thee to keep hidden from us more often than not. So grant thy blessing, especially upon the mature saints as they wage warfare with the enemy and seek to stand fast as they have their ongoing battles. God, uphold them and graciously support them. And may they also be a memory that is treasured. That when they're gone, we think of them with fondness and great joy knowing that they remained faithful and steadfast to the very end. Be with us then throughout this week. Give strength and pour out much of thy Spirit upon us. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be the abiding portion of thy people now and evermore. Amen.